0: scripture reading from the Gospels is from Matthew 5:43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. May we see Hey, Ed, did you rewrite that Sing Hallelujah song? No, that was a different version. All right. I um, was the first time. Had anybody sung those lyrics before? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. I'm the, I'm the odd man out. Sorry. All right. Gotcha. Well, I was going to use that as a segue to let you all know that we have a, an award-winning songwriter in our midst today. Uh, he didn't know I was going to say this, but Ed Carr won a lifetime award for songwriting from the Christian songwriters. Uh, Is it a guilt, what is it? The Christian Musician Summit awarded him a lifetime achievement award. And so I think we just need to give him a hand, yeah. Anyway, my segue failed. But anyway, yeah, he give me one, right. He writes, he does, I don't know that uh, maybe everybody's aware of this because we don't always read the little fine print up on the slides, but he writes some of the music that we do here, or he rewrites and rearranges some things that we do here. And that probably, uh, you don't know that unless you read the fine print on the slides, which hopefully we're not doing because we're worshiping God, right? So, because uh, it's about God, not about us. And uh, But we thank thank God for Ed. So... One of the things uh, I, used, uh, I used to love to do was play volleyball uh, because, you know, I don't know, something about aging uh, starts to change the sports that you do. But um, I, was, I used to play in a, a volleyball league, a co-ed volleyball league in, a, in the area, in a community that we were living in. And it was a great opportunity for me as a pastor to go out and just be around people who don't go to church um, because I'm around church people all the time. And so it was kind of nice to go out and play on this co-ed volleyball team. And I got to know the team And there was another guy, Jim, on the team, and him and I were the tallest guys on our team. And so we were always having, you know, maybe not always having to, but always wanting to be in the front row. Um, And if you've ever played with those people, you know, have you ever played volleyball with the people who have to hog the ball and be in the front line all the time? That was Jim and I. And so uh, we were always, you know, very, very uh, competitive, but we got along really well. We joked around on the court. We won some games. We lost some games, but we just had a great time together. And, and Jim and I were becoming friends. And uh, one night after, after a game, uh, it was a late night game, he, he, we were walking to the sideline to pick up our stuff and head out. And he says, he asked me that question that every pastor dreads. What do you do for a living? <laughs> Not, we don't all dread it, but... But I always have this hesitation in me at that question because, all right, now how's this person going to now relate to me once they know that I'm a pastor, right? How are they going to begin to relate to me because now they're, because I've seen this happen before. People who are uh, just, we're just buddies, we're goofing off, and then they learn about, and all of a sudden they change their demeanor. They change the way they act around me. And so I said to Jim, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And he said, no. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. He's like, and he, he like shook his head. He's like, "There's no way that you're a pastor." <laughs> he's seen me play volleyball. That's the thing, right? <laughs> and I said, uh, what, "What?" He's like, "Well," I said, "Well, what makes you that so hard to believe?" And he says, "Well, you don't act like a pastor, right?" Now, I didn't, now keep in mind, I was, I, I, I do, I do clean language on the volleyball court. I'm very encouraging to other players and all that stuff, but he just had gotten to know me in such a way that he could no he couldn't see me in that category, right? He couldn't, he, my relationship with him was not fitting his stereotype, his mold, his perception of what a pastor was. Because he couldn't imagine a pastor, one, being friends with a pastor, right? Or joking around with a pastor. All these things that we assume pastors are serious and never have fun and don't play games or volleyball. And so those things, so all those assumptions came back to Jim. But so I love actually, you know, we continued. He didn't let that get in the way of our friendship, which I loved about him. But the thing is, is that we're always, see, I think in our relationships, we're always trying to figure people out. Have you noticed that? Like we're always trying to figure out what category to put people in. We talked about this before. Where do they fit? You know, I I have to put some labels on this person so that, you know, I know whether they belong in the friend category or not, or whether I can be friends with them or not, or whether I can actually associate or be in relationship with them or not. We're always kind of playing this mental game with ourselves as we meet people and as we get to know people, and we're always trying to kind of think how do they fit into my life or into my relationships, right? We play this little mental game. I love what Bob Goff says in his book, Everybody Always, as we wrap up the series this week. He says, instead of trying to figure everybody out, just love everybody, right? What if we just stop trying to figure each other out and trying to figure out what categories people belong in and stop trying to figure all these things out and just love people for who they were? Just appreciate them for who they are. Just be in relationship with people, not try and figure them out and figure out whether they fit or not. That's part of loving everybody always, right? And this is exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. We're back to what's called the Sermon on the Mount here. It's a sermon that Jesus is giving to to many, many people on a hillside. And he's teaching them different things about the kingdom of God. He keeps referring to the kingdom of God. But notice that he says, we in the kingdom are even to love our enemies. Which if you think about it, what he's doing is saying, love everybody. (laughs) Because if you are called to love your enemy then you're actually called to love everybody in your world, in your life. There, there's no limit to who we're to love in the, in the people around us. And we're even to love our enemies. We're to love everybody always. That's what he's saying. That's how far he extends it. That's how far the circle goes for Jesus. So the kingdom ethic here that Jesus talks about is this. The kingdom ethic is greet, pray, Love. I expected more of a laugh from that one because there was a famous book and movie called Eat, Pray, Love, but they got it wrong. They should have gone back to Jesus' sermon. They would know it's greet, pray, love. And what Jesus is talking about, that if we're in the kingdom of God, our role is to greet our enemies, pray for our enemies, and love our enemies. Think about that. Think about the early church. If you go back in history, church history, to the first beginnings of the early church, the Christians of the first, uh, for the first 200 years of their existence were killed, tortured, persecuted, thrown to lions, crucified, burnt at stakes by the Roman government. Never did they take up arms and retaliate. that. And it's in the third century. What happens though in the third century in Rome? (laughs) The Romans become Christian. (laughs) Was there something about 200 years of loving your enemy that actually impacted the nation of Rome, the mightiest military power in the world at the time for them to become Christian? Was there something in their acts of loving their enemies and not retaliating that actually changed the world? think about it. Is it possible that actually God is up to something? And I, I wonder how many generations they had to go through of basically martyrdom before the world became to, came to know Christ. And we know that historically, had that not occurred, Christianity would not have been a worldwide religion. It would have stayed a small sect in Israel. But because, maybe it's because the Christians and the Christians in the kingdom was lived out in loving everybody, <laughs> that that was the kingdom ethic that, was, that they discovered. And so we're, what Jesus says, though, is we're participants in that kingdom when we greet, pray, love, even our enemies. So let's unpack that. i want to unpack that a little bit this morning. So greet, what would it look like for us to greet our enemies, even those that are, that are against us? What would it look like to greet them? Because in this idea, Jesus saying, this idea, this word greet actually means to be on friendly relations with. I want you to think about that. To greet someone who is your enemy means that you're to be on friendly, you and I are to be on friendly relations with them. Now, how do we typically greet our enemy? Go ahead. This is participation time. What you ignore, right? We ignore them. Give them the side eye. Yeah. Yeah the eye roll, which is what I get from my teenage daughters, right? The eye roll, right? <laughs> what else? What, what's that? We don't greet them, right? We, we avoid greeting them, right? We, we walk the other side of the street. We avoid. We ignore, I heard, right? Those are some of the things that we do to people that are, we perceive to be our enemies. What Jesus is saying is, greet them. <laughs> that means... Go be on friendly relationship with them, even if they're not friendly to you. I find this uh, to be very helpful uh, practice, and you can try this, try this out this week. Uh, when I'm driving through the city of Seattle, I get the one-finger salute, you know, a few times a week probably, you know. I don't know what, maybe I'm a bad driver, I don't know. But I get the one-finger salute, and sometimes when I see the one-finger salute, I give them back the two-finger salute. You know what that is? Peace. Just just try that. Just watch if that changes anything, right? Because when you don't retaliate, right? I, I love it because there's a part of me that just goes, no, peace back to you. I'm not doing the same thing. I'm not going to retaliate. That's not going to get us anywhere. Now, I don't do that 100% of the time, but I try and do it often, right? I don't want you to get this image that I don't ever get mad at another driver. But there are times when it's just peace, is the word to speak into that situation, because it, yelling at them is not going to do anybody any good, right? That's the perspective, to greet, to be on friendly terms with. You know, when um, there's actually a story in the Bible, if you read the book of Genesis, there's a, bun, there's a story. The book of Genesis is, is stories of families, and there's one particular family towards the uh, end of Genesis, and there are these two brothers. Their, name are, their names are Jacob and Esau, And Jacob stole the birthright from Esau and his birthright and his blessing from his his father. And so they become estranged brothers. And then one day later in life, they're, they're coming back into proximity to one another. They're near each other. And Jacob learns that Esau's not too far away. And Esau's coming to meet him with 400 men, by the way. So Jacob sets up this way of greeting his brother And the night before they actually meet, he wrestles with an angel from God. He gets what we call the holy limp because God touched him, and he is now limping towards his brother the next day, which I find interesting in the story, that now he's now having to limp to his brother. But here's what else, here's how he greets his brother. He sends ahead gifts to his brother. And then as he approaches his brother, his perceived enemy, he bows seven times as he approaches him. Why is he doing this? He's greeting his brother, his potential enemy, on friendly terms. He's saying, even if you're going to attack me, I am going to be friendly towards you. Even if you're going to come against me, I am going to seek to reconciliation with you. And so that's what Jacob does after he wrestles with God. I think that's what Jesus is, is alluding to here is that when we go and greet our enemy, we're to, we can still be friendly. We can still be on good terms. We can still be relational, even if they're not that way back to us. Now, the good news in that story is that they do reconcile in that moment, and they begin to reconcile and move on in a new way. So, greet your enemy. What would that look like to greet your enemy? next thing is jesus says pray pray for those who persecute you pray for those that are your enemies or those that are persecuting you this is this is a tough one isn't it but i actually think that prayer is important maybe the first thing we can do even before we greet our enemy is that we can pray for our enemy Because I think sometimes when we begin to pray and we begin to bring our enemies before God, when we begin to bring those other people before God, we begin to change our perspective on things, right? So I begin to see that person not just through my eyes or through what they're doing, but I begin to see them as God sees them. And they might actually begin to change because we as people of God do believe that prayer does change things, that it's not just a, a notion or a nice saying to pray for people, but we do believe that God will change people's hearts and minds when we pray. And so what would it look like to pray for our enemies or those who are against us or those who persecute us? Now, difficult people, one of the the topic today is difficult people. And I have encountered difficult people everywhere. Like it doesn't matter where you go in life. They're at work, neighborhoods, um, stores, wherever you go in life, you're going to encounter difficult people and guess what? They even exist in the church. But we don't expect to find them there, but they're there, okay? Because we're all human. We're all in these different communities, and human beings bring with them everything that could be difficult. I was in a church community at one point in time, and this uh, we were in a church meeting, a big church meeting, and we had uh, one particular gentleman in our congregation who was probably one of the more negative toxic type of people that I can remember and he he just had a demeanor about him he was always angry about something and complaining about someone and I remember we're in this church meeting and we I don't even know what the church meeting I don't even remember what we were trying to figure out I mean that's how important that was that meeting was but the the this gentleman stood up in the middle of the meeting. He always did, you know, he, he did what I call grandstands. You know, he, they get up and they let you have it. Right. And they, it's like taking a grenade and throwing it into a room and running away, you know, and just watching everybody get upset. Right. So he gets up, he stands up, he always hiked up his pants and he'd say, well, let me tell you people. That's always how he said, you people. Like I'm not a part of you people. Like this isn't my church. This isn't my community. It's you people that are a problem, not me, right? And it always started off that way. And he began to go in, and argue and complain about something. I don't know what it was at the time, but he just got. He was just kind of going on his uh, his uh, grandstand, and uh, and I noticed that one of the kindest women in our church, she just got up and left. And I thought, okay, what's what's going on there, right? So she gets up, she leaves the meeting. And one of the nicest people I know. So here I've got this person going crazy, going, going on their tirade in the meeting, and then I've got the kindest woman in my congregation now left. And I'm like, this isn't good. Like, I need the kind people in here with, you know, I, I need, like, don't leave, right? So after the meeting was over, wrapped up, and we left, I I went to find this this person, this woman who had left the meeting. And I found her in the sanctuary, in the place of worship. And she was standing and walking through the sanctuary, and she was praying out loud. And I began to hear as I was walking, because she didn't see me come in the room, and she was walking and praying out loud, and she was speaking out loud her prayer. And she was praying something along these lines. God help Krusty crust, Heart. That's what she said. She kept referring to somebody called Krusty Heart. And she was like, God, soften Krusty Heart. God, work in the heart of Krusty Heart. And he, she kept naming this Krusty Heart person. I knew exactly who she was talking about. And she, here's what she did. Instead of staying in that meeting and listening to that and arguing with him, she left and she went to God and she began to pray for that person. She began to pray that his heart would be softened, that God would speak into his life, that he would, be, he would know that God loves even him. That's what a Christian does. That's what it means to be in the kingdom, is to pray for those who persecute us, pray for our enemies, pray for those difficult people in our lives. If we can do nothing else, we can always pray. And prayer might just change us as we respond to them and as we think about them and as we relate to them. And then the third thing Jesus says very clearly is love your enemies, right? And love is this. See, if you and I wait for our emotions to love an enemy, it's not going to happen. Our emotions very rarely will line up with our act to love, right? You know, sometimes we wait to act in love until we feel like it. Have you ever noticed that? Like, have you ever noticed how you wait to be kind to someone or you wait to be. Uh, act in love to someone uh, until you feel like it. But when Jesus says, love your enemies, it actually says, he's saying, you're never going to feel like it. If you wait till you feel like it, you'll never do it. Because love literally is an act of the will to benefit someone else, regardless of those feelings, regardless of the feelings that I have. So I can actually act in love towards someone without feeling love for them. I can benefit, do something that might benefit them or show love to them as a decision and as an act of the will. Here's the thing I think we get mixed up about love. Love is not weakness. Love is not meekness here. Love is an assertion of the will. It is an act of confidence in God's love for us that helps us to love other people. This is, this is, assert, this is assertive love. <laughs> this is an act of the will, it says, and a determination to say, I'm going to love you. I am determined to love you even if you don't love me back, even if you don't love others. I am going to continue to reflect the kingdom of God, which is what Jesus says in this passage. He says, you know, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, he's saying it doesn't matter who they are. Love everybody always. It takes an act of the will. I thought about this, and I was starting to compare, like, with other acts of the will, other acts of determination. And I think, uh, I thought about this. So why does somebody want to climb Mount Everest? I mean, why? Because it's there. That's the the answer, right? Or Mount Rainier or K2 or any of these big mountains that take a lot of effort. So when you climb Everest, think about this. What makes a person decide to do that? They're not going to feel good doing it, right? I don't know about you, but I don't think it's going to feel good. But I think there's a part, and get this, they're walking into what kind of environment? They're walking into a hostile environment. freezing Below freezing temperatures, high altitude, which are get high altitude sickness. You could freeze to death. You could fall in a crevasse. All these things could happen to you as you walk into this hostile environment and you're willingly doing it. It's an act of your will to climb a mountain. It's an act of determination, knowing that you don't ha- you're not going to feel good doing it, Right? what if loving your enemy is the same way? What if loving your enemy is is Jesus's Everest of the Christian faith, right? It's going to be hard. You're going to go into a hostile environment, and it's going to take an act of your will to do it. If you wait till you feel like hiking up the mountain, it's not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. So in that vein too, I thought I read some blogs by people who had summited Everest, and I said, what does it take to summit Everest? I just got curious. This is the fun part of my sermon development. (laughs) So I read a blog by a, a gentleman who had summited Everest six times, and he asked some questions to ask yourself before climbing the mountain, which I think is wisdom, right? So after reading it, I've decided I'm not climbing Mount Everest. But there were a couple questions that out of that blog that I want to share with you because I think it applies to loving our enemies. And I, th- I would call these questions healthy precautions to love your enemies. I do think we need to be healthy in our, and take some healthy precautions before we go and engage in a hostile environment or loving our enemies. The first question is this. Do you have the capacity? So when you go to climb Mount Everest, you have to ask yourself the question, do I have the mental and physical and emotional capacity to climb this mountain. You have to ask that question before you decide to climb because you have to, you have to gauge that within yourself. I think it's true for loving your enemies. I think you and I have to gauge our capacity to love. Am I at a place? Do I have the capacity to go love this person? Am I so filled with the love of God myself that this is a, a place of confidence that I'm coming at this from and not a place of emotional weakness or strength or weakness and not having the strength, the love that I need to actually go love this person. Does that make sense? So I do believe that we have to have the capacity to love someone. And if we don't have the capacity, if we feel like we don't have the capacity, take a healthy precaution. Maybe wait till you're at a better place to that. And I would suggest to you the ways that you could gain capacity to love others is to get more in touch with God's love for you to get more embraced by God's love for you, that you are loved whether that enemy loves you or not. God loves you. Others love you. You have people that love you. Get in touch with that capacity that God gives you. And also worship God. (laughs) Pray, talk to God about that enemy. God will give you the capacity. Trust God in that process. But I think it's a good question to ask, do I have the capacity to do this? Am I at a good place to do this? Because otherwise, I'm going to end up in a train wreck. The other thing, the other question that I think is a very important question for both loving your enemy and climbing Everest is, can you do it safely? It's very important if you're going to climb Mount Everest, right? Do you have the right equipment? Do you, have you trained? Do you have the right guide? You know, do you have all the things in place so that you can do this safely? Here's the thing I would say uh, as, as I think about loving our enemies because sometimes we take this love for enemies as kind of a blanket statement and we, f- we, we forget that God is not asking us to put up with an abusive person. God's not asking us to go and, and, and go into a hostile environment or abusive environment and tolerate the abuse or put up with the abuse. That's not what this means. So that's why we have to ask the question, can we do it safely, Right? Am I able to do it in a way that keeps me whole and keeps me intact emotionally, physically, right? So I have to be aware that there could be harm done and I need to take healthy precautions to make sure that no harm comes to me or others because I'm trying to love an enemy. You know, Jesus, a lot of times we look to Jesus and we say, well, Jesus went to the cross. You know, he laid down his life, right? I would say to you that there's only one time that Jesus ever did that and that was when he went to the cross, we see that they they tried to kill him after he read the scroll in the synagogue and they led him to the edge of a cliff and they were about to throw Jesus off the cliff. I want you to know that Jesus didn't put up with that. Jesus walked away from that crowd when they became abusive towards him. Or if you look at John and there's a passage in John where Jesus is actually about to be stoned by the crowd. And instead of, he doesn't allow himself to be stoned. He walks out of that abusive situation. And so I would say to you that Jesus never put up with abuse himself. And the, and the time that he went to the cross was a sheer act of his will and determination to go to that cross, to be on mission, to love people and to love God. And that's what drove him there. That was his decision to love us. It was his act of the will to love us. But notice that every other time he was in harm's way, he got out of it. He avoided it. And I think I don't think God expects us all to be crucified as well. In fact, I think one of the things we often have to also get over as we think about loving our enemies is to remember that we are not the savior of our enemies. Jesus is. Jesus is the savior of our enemies. We can help show them love, show them that Christ's love exists and lives in us, but we need to remember that Jesus is their Savior, not not us. It's not our job to save them, it's Jesus's job. It's the Holy Spirit's work in them that we can hopefully facilitate through our actions of loving them. So I want you to think about this. Do you have the capacity? Can you do it safely? What would it look like for you to love your enemies? So I would suggest you do this. Make a list of your enemies. Not so you can tally up all the things that they did to you. We keep those lists already. But make a list of those people in your life that you may perceive as an enemy or someone who you perceive as a difficult person. maybe, Maybe we need to use that phrase. Who are the difficult people in my life right now? Make a list of those difficult people. And I would ask that the first thing as you make that list to do is to lay them before God. Pray for them. Lay them before God and talk to God about that situation and talk to God about those folks. You can call them crusty heart if you want to. But make a list and begin praying for them. And then also, as you're doing the prayer, ask God, what is it that you could do to express encouragement or love to those people safely, with capacity? What would that look like? Maybe it's something as simple as the next time you see them, you're going to be nice to them, (laughs) even if they're not nice to you. Maybe you're going to show the peace sign when they flip you off. What are you going to do next time? How are you going to respond next time? How will you love them next time? You see, if we're going to do this, if we're going to be participants in the kingdom, this is what Jesus asked us to do, to greet them, to pray for them, to love them, even the difficult people in our lives. As we wrap up this series, was, there's a powerful story in Bob Goff's book, Everybody Always about a witch doctor named Kabi in Uganda. And uh, Bob goes, uh, he's actually a lawyer, if you didn't know that or you haven't been a part of the series, but Bob is a lawyer and he goes to Uganda and he learns in Uganda that the witch doctors abduct children and there's children's sacrifice going on in Uganda, even to today. And so he was hoping as a lawyer to be able to try and bring to trial one of the witch doctors, but nobody wanted to, to be, you know, wanted to report this, or, and it was all hidden. And so, one day, they, there was a child that was abducted, but lived uh, after the abduction, and they were able to talk to this child, and this child was able to point out the witch doctor that did this to him, and his name, the witch doctor's name was Kabi. And so, Bob goes to Uganda and asks to try Kabi, and brings Kabi to the Ugandan court system, and they try him, and he is convicted, and he's convicted, and he's put in prison for life this is i think one of the first convictions of a witch doctor in uganda and so as a result of this uh the children begin to be protected by uh from witch doctors in the country of uganda but there's still a lot of work to be done but then bob does something else the next time he goes back to uganda he desire he decides to visit kabi in the prison and so he goes to Kabi, this person that has done this horrendous act and is now, and he's helped convict and he goes to meet him in prison because that's another part of the kingdom if you didn't know it. With those that are in prison were to go visit them. So he goes and he visits Kabi and Kabi now is, is going to live the rest of his life in prison. He's going to die in this prison He's got nothing basically left to live for. And so, as, as Bob encounters him in the, in the prison, Cobby asked, made one request of him. And here's Cobby's request forgiveness. He asked for forgiveness. That as he sat in the prison, he learned that he needed to be forgiven. He said, I, I need nothing else. I just need to know that I'm forgiven. And through that conversation, Bob shared Christ with Cobby. And Kabi became a follower of Jesus. And many months later, Bob goes back again. And this time, though, Kabi is preaching the gospel to hundreds, uh, actually 3,000 inmates in that prison. And Bob's standing there with him as he's preaching the gospel. Bob says it's one of the worst sermons he's ever heard. (laughs) He didn't really get everything right. But at the end of the message these inmates, hundreds of these inmates came forward and Kabi pulled out a bottle of water and begins baptizing them as they're coming forward. He's not ordained. He's not a pastor. You know, all these things are messy, right? But what's happening is the spirit of God is moving, right? And so what Bob learns through this relationship with Kabi and what he learns through the relationship with other witch doctors is that they're lonely people, (laughs) Who would have thought that they'd be lonely? They feel isolated, lonely. They were uneducated. No one had, no, everybody avoided them like we do our enemies. And so Bob began to set up a school to educate witch doctors in Uganda. And they have graduated hundreds of witch doctors who now can read and write and learn other subjects and are getting an education and raised being, their, their life is being raised out of poverty and out of this belief system. And now some of them are helping rescue children from child sacrifice. I want, to add, I want you th- us to think about that. What if Bob had not loved the children of Uganda and not loved the enemies of the children of Uganda? Where would we be today? And it doesn't mean everything's perfect or everything's fixed, but what Bob was doing was what he said in his book, and I'll leave you with this quote. He says this, people who put wheels on their faith are willing to take tremendous risks to do that. Not so they're the hero or the victim, but so they're a participant, a participant in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together.